Why aren't we all smiling? We should all be smiling. A horse walked into a bar, and he sat down at the bar. And before he could even order a drink, the bartender said, what's with the long face? I've seen a lot of long faces today. Jesus Christ, our living hope, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ, our living hope. Uh, I want to tell you two things. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is in control. And number two, God is good. God is good. So if God is sovereign and God is good, then brothers and sisters, we have nothing to fear. All right? We have nothing to fear, as Brooks said. Uh, this process is going to go on, as we know, for several days, weeks, who knows? Uh, and we'll let that process run its course, uh, but let us be a model uh, that we're not rioting in the streets and, and doing the things that we've accused others of doing. Uh, we trust the Lord Jesus Christ with the outcome, whatever this is. And our mission has not changed, right? Our mission has not changed. What is our mission? Well, Jesus gave it to the disciples as he left. As he, before he left, he charged them with the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and do what? Make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Not make Democratic disciples. Not make Republican disciples. Go make disciples of who? All nations. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And don't miss the last phrase that gets thrown away oftentimes. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So whatever happens here, brothers and sisters, we serve a great and glorious Savior, and it's going to be okay. And... Uh, if the wounds are raw right now, that's okay too. Uh, it takes time. And we are just going to be required to be citizens of heaven. Uh, and we're gonna be called on to pray for our leaders. Uh, that's a biblical mandate. And we know that God puts our leaders in place. And uh, so we have to be now more than ever, we have to be uh, Christians, not only uh, in name, but in action as well. Uh, so let's go forth and do that. Uh, I'm not going to stand up here today and preach a message about unity and harmony and all these things. I don't think we're ready for that yet. Uh, we'll see what happens over the coming days. Uh, our charge is to preach the gospel. And so I'm going to preach the gospel today. Uh, the gospel is good news. And brothers and sisters, we need good news, don't we? So uh, we're just going to continue our study in the book of Romans this morning, and we're going to pray for our country. And as we think about our country, this week is Veterans Day, and so uh, we just want to take a minute for, uh, to honor our veterans. Uh, if you've served in the military, please stand up and let us acknowledge you. For those of you on Facebook who are watching, I know uh, Dan and uh, my father, two people I know who served in the military who are watching, I thank you for your service and uh, all that you who have served have done to make this country great. Uh, and we just continue to pray that God uh, will continue to make our country great no matter who occupies the White House. Uh, so that is uh, all I'm going to say on that issue for now. And uh, we're going to 
continue our study now in the book of Romans. Uh, and we're going to move into a new section of Romans this week. And the message today is called The Heart of an Evangelist, uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Well, have you ever heard the expression, the elephant in the room? There's an elephant in the room. It means that there is some controversial issue or topic that is so obvious that no one can miss it, right? It's, it's there, it's in the room, it's hanging over everyone, just like this uh, enormous heavy haze, uh, but nobody wants to talk about it for whatever reason. Uh, it will cause embarrassment, it will cause discomfort, uh, it might raise conflict, or, or it's going to be awkward, uh, but there is this elephant in the room, and so I found this cartoon uh, a lawyer is cross-examining an elephant on the stand, and he says, if you were in the middle of the room the whole time, why can we not find a single witness to corroborate your testimony? Uh, the elephant in the room is there. It can't be missed, and yet we just don't want to acknowledge uh, that it's there, even though uh, it is. So a couple of examples. Let's say some rich relative dies, and, and the whole family attends the funeral, and you know, hopefully there are some people there who are mourning the rich relative, uh, but Deep down, we know that what we're all thinking is, well, what did he leave me? What did she leave me? It's the elephant in the room. It's not polite conversation, but everybody is thinking about it. Or let's say uh, your 10-year-old boy uh, lost his baseball glove, and he's running around the house, and he's freaking out because he can't find his glove and practices in 10 minutes or whatever, and uh, you go up to his room to try to help him, and you now see why he can't find his baseball glo uh, glove. There's 10 feet of laundry all over the place, and there's empty potato chip bags, and there's cups all over the place, and uh, the elephant in the room is that, well, you know, if there wasn't 10 feet of trash around, you might be able to find your baseball glove, but because he's upset, uh, you ignore that. You don't bring it up. The mess is the elephant in the room. Well, we're moving into a new section of Romans, as I said, that runs this week, uh, or in the weeks to come. This, this new section runs from chapters 9 to chapter 11. So let's go back and review our chart. Uh, the first section was the section that we called sin. Uh, in chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 3, we see that everybody is under condemnation for their sin. There is no one who can claim innocence. There is no one who can claim ignorance. Everyone is guilty, and everyone is without excuse. But then in the second half of chapter 3 through the end of chapter 5, this next section of the gospel that is called salvation, it is the gospel message. It's the good news of how uh, we can escape God's judgment. And so we deserve God's wrath, but as we know, Jesus Christ took God's wrath on himself so that we would not have to suffer it. And he lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was raised from the dead, and if we place our faith in him, then we will experience Jesus Christ's salvation. The blood of Christ pays for our sin, and, and, G and God declares us righteous, not in the sense that we have any righteousness of our own, but that he gives us Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness, which is what we need to get into heaven. And then the next chapter, a section of the letter, verses, uh, or chapters 6 through 8, is this section that we called sanctification. Chapter 6 talks about our relationship with sin. Uh, shall those who have died to sin continue to live in it? And of course, the answer is no, we should not sin anymore. S uh, salvation is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, it's, a, it's a ticket to, to uh, follow Christ, to emulate Christ, uh, to do the things uh, that Christ would do, to, to lead the moral life that we should live. 
Well, chapter 6, we shouldn't sin. Well, what about law? Do we need to keep the works of the law? Well, that's chapter 7. And the answer to that question is yes and no. Uh, no, we don't keep the works of the law uh, to attain salvation. Uh, that's salvation by works, and that's salvation by keeping the law. And that is not what we do to be saved. Salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone, uh, by faith alone. But, but yes, on the other hand, in terms of living out the moral life that God wants us to live, yes, we do have to follow the Ten Commandments, because the Ten Commandments reflect God's moral character. And if we're going to be like God, if we're going to be like Christ, we have to live out the law. But how can we do it? Well, that's chapter 8. We have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, is God's down payment to us, who dwells inside of us. God himself, who allows us, helps us to live out this life. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live righteous and holy lives. We've been set free from the law of sin and death uh, to serve the Lord in a new way. We are alive to Christ. Uh, chapter 8, we've been adopted as sons. We're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. And not only that, in the second half of chapter 8, uh, we understand that no matter what happens to us, and no matter if the worst thing possibly happens to us, no matter how much suffering we have to endure, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. God foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. He glorified us. Our salvation is more secure than Fort Knox. It's the most secure thing in the entire universe. And so uh, right here at the end of chapter 8, this would be a perfect time for Paul to apply all of this doctrinal teaching that he has uh, written in the first eight chapters. And in fact, uh, if you skipped right over chapters 9, 10, and 11, left off at the end of chapter 8 and started in chapter 12, it would be perfectly seamless. Now check this out. Verse 839, no created thing will ever be able to set us free, or se I'm sorry, separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, that would make perfect sense, would it? wouldn't it? We, we don't need chapters 9 to 11 to make the connection. You've been saved, now go serve. But there's an elephant in the room that Paul can't ignore. What about the Jews? What about the Jews? If nothing can separate the called of God from his love, that's 839, why is God's chosen nation, Israel, cut off from his love? And if that's true, uh, then what about the believer? How can we say our salvation is secure? Can't the same thing happen to a believer in Jesus Christ? And that's not all. Why are not more Jews believers in Christ if they are God's chosen people? And has God's word failed? Is God unfair? How can he hold those responsible, those who he hasn't chosen? And so that's a whole lot of elephants in the room, and Paul is not going to ignore those. He's going to address those things in chapters 9 through 11. And so what we see in these chapters is that God is sovereign over election, and we're going to see it in three different ways. In chapter 9, uh, he talks about God's dealing with Israel in the past, uh, what has God done for Israel in the past? We'll talk about that as we get through chapter 9. That's the sovereign side of salvation and election. And we learn in chapter 9 that God has a purpose in election. But there is chapter 10, 
uh, and that is the present problem with Israel, both in Paul's day and in our day. Uh, this is the human responsibility side of salvation, and the problem is, is that Israel has rejected God. God's chosen people did not choose God. But that's not the end of Israel's story. Chapter 11 is about God's future plans for Israel. Many uh, are being saved in Israel today, and many were saved long ago and along the centuries. Uh, but there's going to be a future remnant that is going to be saved in God's timing uh, and in his love. Did God reject his people? No, not at all. Uh, did they stumble as to fall? No, not at all. Israel is still God's chosen people, and he will save them when the full number of Gentiles has come in. So that's broad strokes over where we're going over the next several weeks here in chapters 9 through 11. Uh, but as Paul talked about the Jews now, uh, understandably, he became uh, quite emotional. Uh, these were his people. These were his countrymen. And whenever Paul came into a new city, uh, to try to preach the gospel in the book of Acts, who did he go to first? He went to the Jews, his people, his countrymen, because he loved them and he wanted them to hear the gospel. And it was only when the Jews rejected him, that's when he went on to preach to the Gentiles. But not only that, Paul understood better than anyone the blindness that the Jews were experiencing, right? Because Paul had been blind himself before the, the, the Damascus Road experience. So before Paul launched into this plan for, for Israel, uh, what is going to happen in God's providence to Israel, he really expresses right here the heart of a pastor and the heart of an evangelist. Paul agonized for his lost brothers and sisters who had rejected Christ and forfeited their hope of salvation. So let's look at verses one through three. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my countrymen, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So we see Paul's great love for the Jews in verses one through three. And that's true even though they challenged his credibility. In verse 1, Paul set out here to, set, to establish his credibility in three different ways. Do you see it there? In Christ, in my conscience, and in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul was very intent on establishing his credibility. And Paul pledged uh, that he was telling the truth for his heart for the lost. He wanted them to understand that he had a heart for these lost Jews so why did he feel the need to defend himself so strongly? Well, as you know, after Paul's conversion, he traveled throughout the known world uh, preaching this gospel. Uh, and everywhere he went, he encountered hardship, opposition, difficulty, all kinds of things. Uh, everywhere he went, the Judaizers followed him and created trouble for him. They challenged his credibility and authority. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, you can just flip back to Galatians, or flip forward to Galatians chapter 1. And just look at this introduction that Paul gives to this letter to the Galatians. Uh, he is, uh, this is probably the first letter that Paul wrote. And so establishing his authority was a big deal to him because he knew that he was going to be challenged by many. And so he writes this, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through human agency, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead to the churches of Galatia 
And so that is a claim of, of authority being stowed directly on Paul by Jesus Christ himself, not something that he received from men. Well, what did the Jews think of that? Well, not very much. After he left Galatia, they came right in, followed in right after him, preached, uh, told, told those people that uh, Paul's gospel was false, that you must do the works of the law and believe. And so they attacked his character and his credibility. And they said that he was loosening the restrictions of the law and trying to please people. And so Paul spent the first two chapters of Galatians trying to establish his authority and credibility. He challenged the Judaizers. He said he did not receive this gospel from men, but from Jesus himself. And, and even when Peter, when he uh, was engaging in hypocrisy by acting one way when the Jews were not present, and then the, another way when the Jews were uh, present, uh, Paul called him out right to his face, not, not allowing Peter, uh, even though he was the, the foremost of the apostles at the time, uh, to live in this kind of hypocrisy. So Paul was always trying to approve and establish his authority and credibility because, let's face it, no one is going to listen to what you have to say until they believe that you are telling the truth. And uh, we have all kinds of incidents of that going on right now, right? When we think about politicians and we think about the media, uh, we, they have lost credibility with us, right? And so uh, we understand that uh, as, as Christians, as witnesses, our credibility is incredibly important because if they don't believe you, if they don't trust your character and they don't believe you, they're not gonna hear a word that you say. And so we always have to be like Paul, thinking about, uh, how we look to the world, establishing our credibility, establishing our authority. So Galatia is just one example. We know that these Judaizers followed Paul everywhere. They made life miserable for him, slandering him, trying to undo everything that he taught as soon as he left the region, and sometimes before he left the region. So uh, they slandered him. They challenged his credibility. But not only that, they tried to kill him on many occasions. Slander is one thing, but the Jews, they didn't stop at that. You remember in uh, Acts chapter 14 in Lystra, they stoned him and they left him for dead. And, and after he recovered from that, he got up and walked right back into the city and started to preach the gospel again. Uh, what nerve, what, what, what steel uh, Paul had. At Philippi in Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul and Silas commanded an evil spirit to come out of this young lady. Uh, and, and when the evil spirit was gone, her, her handlers realized that uh, their hope for profit was gone. And so they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged him into the city square and beat him mercilessly before throwing them into jail. He barely escaped violent mobs in Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus, Jerusalem, and Caesarea. Paul wrote about receiving the 39 lashes from the Jews five times in that section in 2 Corinthians verse 11. So Paul's life was always in danger. He never had a moment's peace, and it was because his own people, the Jews, were trying to slander him and kill him, and yet Paul never stopped loving them. Are there lessons in there for us today, brothers and sisters? I believe that there are. I believe that there are. Uh, this, is, uh, this, this world may get a little harder before it gets easier for us. And our charge is to love people with Paul's heart. Paul said that he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Do we have that in our heart for, for our enemies, for lost people? Let's think about that as we think about Paul's heart. He said he would gladly trade places 
with the Jews who slandered him and tried to kill him uh, if it were possible. He called them accursed because they had rejected Jesus. And so we think about Paul and we, and we just marvel. How could Paul, uh, who faced all of this persecution, this slander, this violence, these uh, murder attempts on his life, how could Paul love the Jews enough to write these words about them to say that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his lost enemies. Well, it's only because of Jesus Christ. Before Christ, uh, Paul would not have cared, probably, for these malicious Jews who wanted to take his life. Uh, he, they wouldn't have been his enemies in the first place, but he wouldn't have cared about his enemies. In fact, his enemies were Christians. Remember Stephen, uh, Paul standing there giving the thumbs up as uh, they stoned Stephen. So Paul didn't think much about his enemies at that point in time, but now he has met the living Christ. Uh, he understood that, that Jesus Christ has died for his sins uh, and, and that he doesn't have to pay the penalty for his sins anymore. Remember, uh, Paul was a Pharisee, uh, one of the strictest of all Pharisees. He was one of them. He had been brought up the, uh, under the feet of Gamaliel, a very famous and well-esteemed teacher uh, of the law. And Paul said of himself, as to the law, I was blameless and I was advancing in Judaism faster than any of my peers. And so what was Paul learning all this time? He was learning the law. He was learning that you keep the law perfectly and then you will be saved. It's salvation by works, salvation by keeping the law. But the problem with salvation by works is that as soon as you sin one time, you can no longer be saved by your works. And so Paul finally understood that salvation by works is a, a fallacy. It, it can never happen. Uh, God says, be perfect as I am perfect. So once we sin, we are no longer perfect and we are in need of a savior and no amount of works of the law can ever save a sinner. And so Paul finally understood this by the love of Jesus Christ. Paul understood that Christ died for Paul's sins and for everyone else's sins so that we have somebody who has paid the penalty that we deserve. And so if anyone understood the plight of the Jews, it was Paul. And if Paul himself couldn't be saved by works, well, then none of them could be saved by works because he was the best Jew of them all. And so he agonizes for these people, not only because they don't know the gospel, but they won't even listen to the gospel. They won't hear it and receive it. And Paul knew that their eternal destination was hell, and that caused him grief, unceasing anguish. Uh, Paul took Jesus' teaching to heart that says, love your enemies and pray for them. And Paul did that at all times by trying to share the gospel with them. And what we see in Paul's life is that his heart became more like God's heart over time. God wants all people to be saved and to come to repentance. God loves all people. He will never turn away anyone who comes to him for salvation. And we know that Paul understood uh, God's plan of salvation, his sovereignty, uh, his plan of salvation in election and salvation. And we've spent several weeks talking about that uh, in Romans chapter 8. But remember, Paul did not know who was God's elect and who was not. And so Paul preached the word, traveled around like everything depended on him. He traveled, he preached, he suffered, and he even faced death to spread the gospel. And about 10 years after he wrote Romans, uh, he lost his head under Nero, uh, spreading the gospel uh, to the world. Now, I would venture to say that there is not one of us in this room who loves our enemies like that. 
No one. Uh, me first. I'll put, be the first to put my hand up. I don't love my enemies like that. And we have to ask the question, how did Paul learn to love his enemies like that? And the only way he could do it was by following Jesus's example. You know, the Jews conspired to crucify Jesus. His own uh, disciple Judas turned against him. And on the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Paul tried to love them like Jesus loved them and like God loved them. And so Paul had this great anguish in his heart because he now understood Christ's love for Paul and for the world and God's love for the world and God's love for the Jews particularly. And that's the subject of verses four and five. Uh, we've talked about Paul's love for the Jews. Let's talk about God's love for the Jews. Chapter nine, verses four and five. So talking about the Jews who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and daughters, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So the Jews had incredible privileges. Look at this list here. There's a list of at least seven privileges, depending on how you count them. Now, I want us to remember all the way back into Romans chapter 3. In fact, if you have a Bible, why don't you turn back there to Romans chapter 3. And uh, let's just talk about that for a second, because remember there, that's the end of the section that Paul was talking about sin. And Paul was saying uh, in chapter 1, Gentiles, you're under sin. And then just so you Jews don't think that you are any better, chapter 2, you Jews too, you're also under sin. And so uh, the, the natural question then at the beginning of, of chapter 3 that Paul asks is, well, what advantage then has the Jew? Uh, what advantage is there to circumcision? And Paul is considering that question, but the only advantage that he mentions there is in verse 3-2 where he says, they have been entrusted with the very oracles of God. And then as Paul is uh, frequently does. He changes course. His train of thought goes somewhere else. And it's only here in chapter 9 that Paul actually returns to this theme of the advantages of the Jews. And, and here we see that the privileges that God gave to the Jews were massive. They were clearly God's chosen people. Uh, this first privilege, the adoption <clears throat> as sons and daughters. Uh, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, uh, God told Moses to say to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So Israel is God's adopted son. <clears throat> the second privilege is the glory. This is Israel's seeing God's glory, and they saw it more than once in the wilderness. You remember that they, uh, during the wanderings, they followed a pillar of cloud by day and a, and a pillar of fire at night. Uh, they saw the, the glory of the Lord like a consuming fire on the mountaintop, and they saw the glory of the Lord fill the temple in the tabernacle. So they saw his glory. The third privilege that God gave is the covenants. Uh, Paul was referencing God's covenant with Abraham, the, the covenant of land, seed, and blessings, and the covenant with David that a descendant of his would always sit on the throne, and the new covenant with Israel uh, to write his law on their hearts and to remember their sin no more, to remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. The fourth privilege, the giving of the law. God gave the law to the Jews through Moses on Mount Sinai. And so now they could know God's heart. They could know God's standard of morality. They could know what God was like. 
And through the sacrificial system, uh, they could repent of their sins, have an animal pay the, the, the penalty for the sins that, that they should have paid themselves, and they could be reconciled to God. The fifth privilege, the, the temple worship. Uh, how do we approach God? How do we worship God the way he wants to be worshiped? With a heart of humility and with the proper instrumentalities of worship. The promises, that's the sixth privilege. These are the promises of Israel's Messiah foretold through the Old Testament all over the place. Uh, but just to pick out a couple, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, uh, the Lord says, I will raise up uh, from among you a prophet like Moses, and you shall listen to him. Or this great chapter in Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant who would die on behalf of our sins. And that's just two among many, many promises that we could pick out from the Old Testament. And then the final privileges, uh, the fathers, the patriarchs through whom the Messiah would come. It's, it's through the lineage of the fathers that Jesus would come. That's Abraham, that's Isaac, that's Jacob. Uh, that's where the promise would be fulfilled. And that's why we have these long lineages in uh, Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, for example, so that we can see that the lineage of Jesus Christ is up through David and through the fathers, through the patriarchs. And so they show that God fulfilled all of these promises. Now, the Gentiles enjoyed none of these privileges, right? So God had purposes in these privileges, and that's why he gave them to Israel. The Gentiles, on the other hand, were outcasts from God. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Paul says of the Ephesians that they were separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth, and strangers and aliens to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is a hopeless plight. And yet Israel had exactly the opposite. They had everything. God gave them all of these incredible things. And God gave them to the Israelites because there was something special about them? No. Not because there was anything special about them. God said about them, not because you were more in number than any other people or because you were the least of the people, but the Lord bestowed these uh, privileges on you simply because he loved the Israelites. And he loved them and brought them out of Egypt. And now God gave no reason for why he did this, except for the reason that he loved them. And God's love and God's privileges should have resulted in the salvation of Israel. And that's why God gave them the advantages in the first place. With the adoption of sons and daughters, with the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple services, the promises and the patriarchs, what more could you ask for? The Jews were perfectly positioned to receive salvation through Jesus Christ. Well, what went wrong? Well, that's the elephant in the room, isn't it? They failed to believe. Why weren't the Jews saved? From the human side, they failed to believe, and that is their obligation. Uh, yes, God elects, and, and yes, uh, God has to elect you for you to, to believe, and, and that's the sovereign side of salvation, God's side of salvation. From the human side of salvation, we must believe, and Israel did not, and so we'll continue to talk about that over the next several weeks. <clears throat> well, what I want to do now is just think about how these verses apply to us. Paul's love for the Israelites and God's love for the Israelites, how is that helpful to us, Gentile Christians, 2,000 years later? And all we can do, all we can do is to pray for people and try to love people to Christ. And so our application for this week is simply this, and it's to check your love meter. Check my love meter. Let's all collectively check 
our love meter. You know, I am asking this on a scale of one to 10, how much do you love your enemies? Especially now, right? Especially uh, if, if the election did not go the way you wanted it to and the pain is, is still raw and you see people celebrating in the streets about it, uh, it's, it's hard. It may be hard for you to love your enemies uh, and it, it, it's gonna take time. But think about Paul's love for the lost. Think about Paul's love for his enemies. His love meter was on 10 all the time. And Jesus' love meter was on 10 all the time. And so the only way to love our enemies like Jesus did and like Paul did is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to save the lost. Those were not the people who were nice to him, right? Those were the people who wanted to have him killed. And Paul, the same. He was trying to preach the gospel to lost people. And what did they do? They stoned him. They tried to kill him everywhere he went. And yet their love meter for their enemies, the, the, the needle always was pinned at 10. Uh, if an angry mob broke into our church here and they wrote stuff all over our walls and destroyed everything that we had spent so much time and money fixing, my initial reaction would not be to love those people. That's not what my reaction would be. My reaction would be anger and revenge. And, and what if it was our own house? What if they did that to our own house? I would not be thinking, oh, I need to love these people to Jesus. No, my reaction would be justice, revenge. What can I do in response? And brothers and sisters, uh, it's, it's tough. Uh, when we're thinking about how to love our enemies, we have to be under the power and submission of God and the Holy Spirit if we're going to love like Jesus did. Uh, Paul always tried to love his enemies like Jesus did. So we need to ask God to change our hearts to be more like his. And so let's just think about it in light of the election that happened this week. We prayed and we voted. And that's all we can do, right? It is out of our hands now. It's out of our control. It's in the control of the courts and whoever else is gonna make decisions about this. But we have done all that we can do. And whether we like the results or not, the only thing that we can do now is to continue to pray and control how we react. Because the world is looking at us, as I said last week, they're going to be looking at us to see how we handle this. Uh, during this election season, we have considered people who disagree with us politically as our enemies. And we've done that even with people who are in the church, people who are in the body of Christ who disagree with us politically, we have called our enemies. Uh, and we've seen Christians posting things on social media that we can't believe that they would post and that they actually believe this thing. But they're still Christians. They just have a difference of opinion than we do. And it's hard to reconcile sometimes in our minds how we can believe so far this way and others can believe so far that way. But those Christians think the same thing about these Christians. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all in the body of Christ. And, and what does this do? All this does is cause division in the church. And what is Satan's greatest tool? Division in the church. Satan loves division in the church. If Satan can't drag us to hell, which he can't do because we are saved and we are sealed, the next best thing he can do is destroy our witness so that we can't take anyone else to heaven with us. And Satan loves that. So we have to be so careful now, brothers and sisters, not to call our brothers and sisters in Christ our enemies just because we see things differently. That will ruin our witness. And now is not the time 
to have our witness ruined. We need to be strong witnesses for, for believers right now. And so uh, this division, uh, it's not good. It has to stop, and it's stopping has to start with us. We just don't want to look like the unbelieving world. We want to look different. We want to be attractive to the world during this time. And so that's people inside the church. We, we've called some people inside the church our enemies. And then there are those outside the church who uh, we have even a greater obligation to. Uh, we talked to the Great Commission earlier. We have to go to all the nations, preaching the gospel, baptizing them, teaching them to obey the commandments. And so we have a greater obligation to these unbelievers to share the gospel with them, even if we consider them our enemies, to at least tell them who Jesus is. Paul loved his lost brethren enough that he said he would be willing to trade places with them. Can you imagine being willing to trade eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ because you love your fellow brethren so much, even though you're enemies, that you would do that for them? That seems incredible to me. So we have to pray for them. We have to love them. So we have to ask ourselves, how can we possibly increase this love meter that exists within us? Uh, And I think that often love is an action before it's a feeling. Have you ever felt that before, that sometimes it's hard to love people, but then when you start doing things for them, uh, you, you learn to love them more with the heart that God has for them. A feeling of, the feelings of love will follow acts of love. So uh, let's start doing things for the lost, even if we disagree with them politically, even if they're our enemies, the more we'll do it, the more we find that God has put his love for them in our hearts, and the better we will be at it. And it's not being phony. The change will come. This is what Jesus talked about when he said, love your enemies. So I just want us to think about how we can try, if, if you want to think about your love meter as a, you know, a, a, a literal thing, let's say you, that your love meter is on zero right now. Ask God to move it up one notch. Ask him to move it to a one. If your love meter's on five, ask God to move it up to a six. Just increase it one, a little bit this week. Think of a specific person who has grated on your nerves during this election season and see if there's one thing that you can do nice for them and see if God does give you a heart of love for them. And there's going to be lots of opportunities for this as we endure what's upcoming in the next uh, several days, weeks, months, uh, with whatever happens with the results of this election. We're going to be uh, coming face-to-face with people who we disagree with, and we're going to be coming face-to-face with family in the coming weeks as Thanksgiving is only a couple weeks away. So we're going to have opportunities to do this. So let's realize uh, that Paul loved the Jews, God loves the Jews, and, and, and God loves us too. Do you realize that God has given to us the same privileges that he has given to the Jews? Uh, he calls Israel his adopted son. And just a few weeks ago in chapter 8, we talked about us being adopted sons and daughters, adopted into God's family. And we too are partakers of the new covenant. We celebrate it every Sunday here when we do the Lord's Supper. We are part of God's new covenant. So Christ's love was so great for us that he died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead and he shared his love for us so that we would share it with others. So just be creative. Ask God to to help you. Say, Lord, help me to love as you love, that as Christ loved, dying for us, Uh, and and loving how Paul loved, even to the point of death. And I think that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can move the needle, and we can love others to Christ, even our enemies, if we are willing, if we'll ask the Holy Spirit for help. 
Uh, brothers and sisters, uh, be encouraged. God loves us. God is in control. And I believe that it's all going to work out. If we trust Romans 8.28, brothers and sisters, God works all things to work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. If we believe that verse, we have to understand that it's going to be okay. God is going to work this for good. And I pray that we'll all be encouraged today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for uh, this demonstration of the love that comes through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, there is no way that Paul could love his enemies like that in his own power. And Lord, if Jesus were not God, there would be no way that he could uh, be hung on the cross and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Lord, I pray that we would be filled with that love. Lord, that we would go from here rejoicing that your son died on the cross for our sins and that, as we said last week, no matter what happens in the next four years, eight years, 10 years, 20 years, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, Lord. May we go from here with that peace, Lord, knowing that you're in control and you are good. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.